Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the passage that we've been using for the past several weeks. That's sort of the culmination of the entire book of the book of Romans. The, the Apostle Paul writes to this Roman church, and we sort of, sort of launched this series out of that. We're going to look at it very quickly in this brief introduction in verse 16 and verse 17. Let me read it to you. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What we want to zero in on today is this, that the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. We're going to talk about belief. We're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about what it means to put our faith and trust in Jesus and in the gospel message of Christ today, a very important subject. And in order for us to do that, let's go then to the main passage that we're going to be reading together, and that is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, 8, 9, and 10. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Thank you. Please be seated. All right. We're going to look at the ABCs of the gospel today, and I don't know if you remember trying to learn your ABCs, but there's a little song that often is sung by children and parents who are trying to teach their children the ABCs. How many of you know what I'm talking about? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I've said my ABCs. Next time, won't you sing with me? Some of you are a little rusty in that. It's been a while. We're going to talk about the ABCs of what it means to believe in Jesus today. The ABCs. And what does it mean? It's very simple. A, B, C. There are only three points in our message today. So we're going to take a look at that in just a minute. I know you will remember the ABCs, I hopefully, when we get through this study today. But before we start, I want to introduce you to this wonderful family on the screen about there. Anybody know who these people are? They're our guests today in the worship service. Now, if you take a look at the big lug who's there, what's his name? Children. Gru. Gru is an interesting fellow, and I'm sure what community he has made his residence in. But if you know anything about um, Despicable Me 1, Despicable Me 2, there's a Minion film. There's also Despicable Me 3 coming out in 2017. I know some of you cannot wait to see it. I'm talking to the adults, not the children. Okay, because these animation films were made primarily for adults, not for children. And Gru is an interesting man. He lives in a suburb of a certain city, and uh, the people that surround him in the suburb are people that have, you know, picket fences and beautiful green manicured lawns and and beautiful flowers around uh, their houses. I mean, it's just a picturesque scene until you find and get to Gru's house. Gru's house is painted black. And his grass is dead. I can't wait for dead grass. With all the rain we've been having, it's, it's, I'm, I'm tired of mowing the grass. Can I get any men from some of you guys who mow grass? I'm ready for the grass to be dead. But he has dead, I mean, his, it's just an, it's a despicable house. And underneath his house, unbeknownst to the people that live there, he has this incredible 
ray of all kinds of things underneath his home, I guess in the basement and underneath the house, that the people around him don't even know that he has. They're completely unaware of what he is doing down in his basement. Now, if you take a look at the guys beneath him, the little yellow dudes, they're called minions, right? And these are the guys that are his army that he's going to use to implement his diabolical plot. What is his plot in Despicable Me 1? It is to steal the moon. Yes, I said it. It's to steal the moon. That's what I like about animation. They can do incredible things. But he wants to steal the moon, and he's going to engage this diabolical plot in order to steal the moon. He's got all kinds of different weaponry. He's got um, a shrink uh, something that sh- a shrink rays. He's got a freeze rays. He's got all kinds of vehicles, right, kids, that are both land and sea. And he's got these minions, and he's going to carry out this diabolical plot. And as he plans out this plot, there are three people that he wants to include in this plot, and these are the three little girls that are orphans. Anybody know their names? Huh? Agnes? What? They're girls, Edith, Agnes, and Margot, three girls. And what's striking about this film is that all of these animation films always have somewhat of a plot that has a moral underlying message to it. And these three little orphan girls look past this despicable guy and see incredible potential. They look past the despicableness of of this this criminal mind and they see the potential this guy could be a great dad and so they set out these three during this film to win him over with their love and it's interesting by the end of the movie their love wins him over and he is totally transformed by the love of these three beautiful little girls A love transforming someone from being despicable to someone being lovely. Where was the first time that you encountered the love of Jesus like that? You were a despicable person. We saw it last Sunday in our study. We were all despicable people. And yet God saw past our despicableness and saw incredible potential, and in spite of all of our sin and our depravity and our wickedness and, and all of that unloveliness that's there, he saw incredible potential, a potential that if his love could impact our lives, we could be not only better for it, but we could be people of incredible potential that we could live out our lives for him in following him. Where were you when you first encountered the love of Jesus? What were you doing when you first encountered this incredible love that saw potential in you? What did you say when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus at that moment when his love transformed your life and forever changed you for all eternity? When, where, who, and what did you say? You know, I'm convinced that for some of us, it's been a long time, isn't it? It's been a long time since we, we first came to the realization of this beautiful love for us, and that love so transformed us and changed us forever. 
Some of us, more than likely, have done it so long ago, we don't remember where we were. We don't remember what we were doing. We don't remember what was said. We just know that we did. Some of us, when we were encountered with a choice or a decision to, to, to be challenged by this incredible love, some of us made a decision or were told somehow that if we just simply prayed a certain prayer, then our lives would be forever changed. And some of us remember praying that prayer, and some of us don't remember praying that prayer. There's some of us who prayed a prayer, but we don't really remember what we prayed or how we prayed. We don't remember if we fully understood what we prayed. Because the reality is when we prayed the prayer of faith, we didn't fully understand what we were doing. And I'm not saying you have to understand all of the complexities of what it means to place your faith and trust in Christ, but you should at least have the basics down to where you understand what you're doing. And I think some of us, if you're like me, you've made that decision so young that you often don't remember what was said. Some of us were in a revival meeting, in a revival setting, and we, we, we said this prayer in a mass sort of a prayer thing, and we, and we walked down an aisle, and we don't really remember, understand how or why we did that, but we did, and we were suddenly presented before church, and we found ourselves being dunked in water and presented as members. Some of us were emotionally coerced into making a decision to trust Jesus. Some of us felt pressure from our parents to do that. And so I, I made a statement a couple of weeks ago that, that we need to fully understand and sort of unpack a little bit today. Simply saying a prayer does not in and of itself guarantee that we are saved. Because unless we understand the full content of what we're doing, and unless we understand the, the impact that it makes into our lives, and we're making the decision that is, that is right, no matter what we say isn't really valid until there are certain things that connect and make the prayer that we pray to reality. So I want to study that a little bit today. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation or trying to confuse anybody here, but I want to just us to sort of unpack what, what God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 primarily, because it is here that we see that I'm convinced there are many people who think they are saved. They claim to be Christians, but in reality, they're not. It is possible. We have a man that I, I don't think he minds me pointing him out, Mike, who built the house that I currently live in, who had been to a Christian school all of his life, had all of the intellectual understanding of what it meant to be a Christian, and yet didn't have that transforming work of the Holy Spirit in his life that impacted his, his, his belief from his head to his heart that has trans, so transformed him that he's never been the same. Is that fair, Mike? But I'm convinced, Mike, that there are many, many, many people just like you sitting in the chairs of and the pews of our churches today who somehow believe intellectually they are saved but have never been transformed by the love of Jesus in an intimate and a personal way. Did you know that the Bible says that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on a cross, and that he rose from the dead and that he's now ascended to the Father. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe in him in such a way that one is saved. Well, let's take a look at the passage I want to unpack for us a little bit today. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, there are three 
points to our study today. My first step. Before we look at the, at, at the three points, do you remember when you took your first step? Anybody remember that? Now some, for some of you, that was 100 years ago. Seems like. How many of you remember when your child took their first step? We probably don't remember our first step. There is a first step that everyone must take before they become followers of Jesus. And until and unless you take the first step, you cannot follow him. You will live a life of powerlessness, frustration, all of those things. And you will seek to live out a life that is sort of explained in the first earlier verses of chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, where we see where the Apostle Paul is singling out a group of people that he's addressing in the church that were Jews. These were people that thought that if they lived a certain way, they could earn merit and deserve their own salvation. And they had boiled down their salvation to a series of laws and legalistic practices that, that they said demonstrated and proved that they were in fact who they claimed to be. And if they could just fulfill all of these requirements and these legalistic things of the law, then, then therefore they would be saved. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You've had the scriptures in your hands the whole time, and yet you've missed the gospel. And I'm convinced there are many in Baptist churches today who have had the scriptures as close to them as we have this word right here, and they have missed the gospel. So let's talk about our first step in becoming a follower of Jesus. A means to accept. This step is three parts. Number one, I must accept. What do I accept? I accept my responsibility in responding to the gift of salvation. I respond to my responsibility of accepting the gift of my salvation. It's not mine until I respond to the call of God and receive what he is offering to me. If you take a look at the text, it says in verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that little word, I-F. F, I-F. This word, if, is a conditional subordinate clause, meaning that there is a condition to what follows it. And what he's basically saying is, if I do this, then I can experience this, then I can expect this, then I can anticipate this, then this will be mine. If I confess with my mouth, and if I believe in my heart, then I will be saved. And if I don't, I won't. What he's saying, if is the largest two-letter word in our English vocabulary today because it helps us understand that, that unless I do something, I cannot expect or experience what follows. And what is, what, is, what is the part about the if is there is a choice on our part in which God has called us, he has revealed to us certain things, and then he sort of gives us the responsibility then to respond to him. And I know there's someone said, you know, we have, we have some who, who said, well, what about the sovereignty of God? I mean, if God's will is always to be done, then can we thwart the purposes of God for our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. And I'm not sure how you put it all together with God being sovereign, meaning God's will will be done, and then my will 
to receive God's will. That's, that's, that's sort of a, a rub for me. I don't know about you. Because I believe God is sovereign. God is on his throne. Yet God gives us a responsibility that once we hear, we then are responsible for at least responding to that responsibility of trusting. I don't, I'm not, it's kind of like the Trinity for me. I don't know how that works. But I believe God is sovereign, but I believe I have a responsibility, and so do you. We have a responsibility to receive and to respond to the call that God issues to us. That's, that's one of the things that he requires from us is a responsibility then to respond to that call. And the only way you can respond to that call is if there's a witness. But we're going to look at it in two Sundays in, in latter latter part of, of, of these verses that are coming next in, in chapter 10. There has to be a witness. God has to send a preacher. God has to send a, a witness, someone who will, who will proclaim the good news. Someone has to respond to the call of God to go and to share the good news. And once they, this witness responds to that call and shares the good news, then they have to share the good news of Jesus. They have to share the gospel. And once they proclaim or share the gospel, that gospel must be heard. And once it is heard and understood, then it must then be received. You see, there's a lot of elements to all of that. And what I think is being said here by God through the Apostle Paul's penmanship is God has done all that is necessary to present it to you. Now you have a responsibility to respond to the call and receive what God is giving to you. And if you don't, it's not yours. It's kind of like going fishing, I think, you know, and, and, and I, I sort, of, sort of wrestle with this all week long. It's kind of like, when you go fishing and you throw the bait out there, waiting for a fish, the fish kind of grabs it, and as you're reeling it in, is the fish coming willingly or resistantly? Depends on what kind of fish you got. I mean, I, I like trout because they put up a pretty good fight, don't they? And some catfish do the same thing, right? They're not willing, are they? There's tension, and you're reeling them in, and you're having that. That's what brings part of the fun into it, isn't it, is, is overcoming this little bitty fish. I don't know how that's, you know, and then reeling them in. And That's not what we're talking about here, where God is throwing the bait of the gospel, and you receive the gospel, and he's reeling you in against your will. It is, it is a part of my response where I am willing to yield to the call, to answer to the respond to the call, and I'm coming forward because there's a tug that's going on in my heart. I don't resist him, I don't fight him, but I respond willingly to the invitation of the gospel. I remember when I was a, a, a boy about nine, about eight years old, and it was on a Sunday night. I was eight, and I was sitting about three-fourths of the way down here on the church. We had a, a small church, and it had a middle aisle, and I was sitting about three-fourths of the way down there. I was eight years old, and my dad and I had been talking quite some time about what it meant to, to receive Jesus and trust Christ as your Savior and all these kind of things, but he never put a lot of pressure on me. On a Sunday night, when he's standing down front and extended invitation, I was sitting there, and I remember like it was yesterday, something pulling me forward. There was a, there was a nudge. It was as real then as it is today. I, I, I sensed it. There was something going on in here that's saying, you need to walk the aisle. And, and I remember resisting it a little bit, but before I knew it, I was walking down the aisle toward my dad. And I took his hand and I said, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and make him the Lord of my life. I remember that pull. You see, there's a nudge, there's a pull, there's a tug, there's something that's drawing us 
to God. God's doing that. And we must then respond responsibly to that tug in order then to become recipients of what is to follow after. You can't create that nudge. You can't create that pull. Only God can do that. And I am convinced that there are many who have not been nudged by the Holy Spirit. They've been nudged by man and his elaborateness in making people somehow think that they're being nudged where they have responded to not the call of God, but the call of man. And so it's important that we understand that we must respond to the call of God, to the nudge of God, to the tug of God, to the invitation of God to salvation. We're not responsible unless God nudges them, unless there's a response. We're to simply be the witnesses, proclaim the message, allow the message to go out there, and let the Holy Spirit do his work. But we're going to go to that next. Once I accept, I must believe. It's important that I believe. A is accept, B is believe. Very simple. Probably one of the simplest messages I think I've ever preached. I made it really, really complicated last Friday, and then, really, then I changed it this morning. Believe, accept, believe. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice it says, and with the heart one believes. It's inverted from verse 9 because you see verse 9 is, is simply a quote from an old, pa- old Testament passage. And that is how the people that he's talking to who are Old Testament lawgivers and law abiders, he quotes that passage. That's the Old Testament. And then he switches it then to the context of the New Testament and how we in Christ come to faith in Christ. And he says before we can come to faith in Christ, we must have a heart transformation. There must be something that changes within our hearts. We must believe in our hearts. And so as we scratch our head and wonder what in the world that means, that means that we, we believe. That means that we, we trust in Jesus as the answer or the solution to our sin. It means that we believe that Jesus, who not only is a son of God and lived a sinless life, was placed on a cross on an altar called Calvary, not for his sins against God, but for our sin against God. And we place our sins on him on the cross, and he dies in our place. And so therefore, he takes upon himself my sin against God and dies in my place. I believe that he died in my place for my sin against God. That is the belief that must happen in the heart. How does that belief happen? You go to the context and how the wording of this whole verse is, and we come up with really some very important principles, and there are five of them. I'm going to want to look at them real quick. Number one, it is internal. Notice he talks about the heart. There must be an internal transformation that takes place in the heart. The heart is the center of one's being. It is your conscience, it is your will, it is your emotional or your affection life, and it is your thought life. And there's a, a whole aspect about your inner being that the word heart symbolic of, but he uses here in this context the word heart because I think he wants his readers and he wants us to understand it's not an intellectual decision, it is a transformation of the heart. He zeroes in on the heart. Because there are many who have made intellectual decisions, but have not had a heart transformation. 
That heart transformation is not only internal, but it's an invasive transformation. It's invasive in the fact that it is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, who then invades our lives the moment we hear the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit that invades into our lives and gives us what we and, and what is necessary in order for us to be saved. The sinner hears the gospel. The Holy Spirit begins his supernatural activity in the heart. And as he begins to work, as we are hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and he helps us understand the consequences of that sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that, that helps us then understand that based on those consequences, I can be saved if I turn to faith in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. What the Holy Spirit simply does is he's, he brings light into our darkness. There's a lack of understanding, and he brings light into the darkness of our understanding. He brings love into our depravity and helps us see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he brings life into our deadness as he <sighs> breathes into us life into our dead bodies so that we might possibly believe. It is a work of the Spirit of God, not a work of the person or the, the person who's receiving the gospel, or the person who is proclaiming the gospel. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the individual, beginning to do this incredible, supernatural, transforming work as he begins to draw this person unto himself. It's invasive. Notice it is inclusive. It is inclusive in that it is sincere. Notice that as he begins to do this transformational work in the heart, that when we commit our heart and to believe with all of our heart, we believe with our whole heart. We don't believe just part of the way or some of the way. We don't just give him a little bit of our affections or a little bit of our conscience or a little bit of our thoughts or a little bit of our will. We give him our total selves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When we come to faith in Christ, we give him everything or we give him nothing. You can't make a true conversion experience by saying, you know what, I'll give you an hour of my week, God, and that's it. We must give him our whole heart, our total selves, every aspect about it. It is all-inclusive work of the Holy Spirit, but it also is an individual work. Notice that he says, the heart of one believes. For with the heart one believes, you must personally believe. And I think what we have sometimes in the church today is a lot of grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the faith who have not come to the personal understanding where Jesus must become my personal Savior. My mom and daddy were saved, so therefore I'm just, somehow by osmosis I am saved. We, we sometimes, in, 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 well, mostly in my generation, not in the generation, you know, that my, my children's generation, because we have a different, whole different standard, don't we, about how our, our children and, and grandchildren raising their kids, they're often not grown into a culture of church, are they? Unfortunately, our children and our grandchildren, as they're raising their children, don't often have the same sort of um, uh, drive or desire to bring their kids and surround their kids with church activity like we used to in the past, remember? Uh, we used to go four days a week, and on Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and any other time the doors of church are open. That's not always the case now. If you go to church twice a month, you're considered faithful today in today's standard. 
Well, those of us who grew up in the church, you know, we kind of grew up around the church. We, we grew up around the Bible. We grew up around the scriptures. We grew up around the teaching and preaching. And we somehow think, you know, we just, we just kind of walk. We kind of just fall into it. But, but it must be a personal belief. I must come to a, a, a place in my life where he becomes my personal savior. Why I personally put my faith and trust in him. And notice that it lastly is incarnal or incarnate. What do I mean by that? If you look at verse 9, it says that God raised him from the dead. That, if, that, that with a heart one believes that God raised him from the dead. You see, my belief should be one in which I believe that his life is now my life. His death is my death. His victory is my victory. I believe that there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That sin no longer has control over me. That his victory has become my victory. That's what I believe. And, and to be quite honest with you, it's hard to have that kind of belief in Jesus, isn't it? It's kind of like, you know, in, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, we have a I have a dad who had a son, and he was sick, and this dad brought his son to Jesus, but Jesus couldn't be found because he was with his other disciples in another place, and so he brought his son to the disciples who happened to be there, and he asked the disciples to heal his son, and they couldn't do it, and because of their failure, they began to have a, a, a battle, you know, uh, and the Pharisees kind of snuck in there and said, ah, you can't, you can't heal him, and they, they were arguing among themselves, kind of like a Baptist business meeting, and they were arguing, and finally Jesus comes in on the scene, and he said, why are you guys fighting? And the father said, it's my fault, I brought my son to you, but you weren't here, so I asked your disciples to pray and to heal my son, and they could not. I believed that you could heal him, but you weren't here, and so I asked your disciples, and you could not, and he said, all things are possible to those who believe. Didn't he say that? And then the father said, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You don't have belief in and of yourself to make it happen. God helps us believe. Faith is a gift from the Spirit. And yet, when he breathes light into our darkness love into our depravity and he begins to help us recognize and realize that Jesus is the answer to our sin we then say Lord I believe but help my unbelief and we then trust him and believe in him and place our faith in him as our personal savior and the end result is what we are justified we have this beautiful relationship with God where all of our sin has been taken care of because Jesus died on the cross for our sin and now we enter into this relationship with him. There's a brand new relationship received because of a righteousness of Jesus, not our own, in which we now can have fellowship with him. We are his children. He is our Abba Father and we can walk and relate to him. So belief is important. It's necessary in order for us to be saved. Accept, believe, confess. We must confess. This is, I think, probably one of the most misrepresented and misunderstood things that we see in churches today, especially when people in large masses are converted to Christianity, like 
at a Billy Graham crusade or maybe at a, in, a, in a large setting sometimes. People are asked to pray a quick prayer and they pray this prayer, but they don't fully understand what it means to make Jesus their Lord. Because you see, there are many who say, I want you to be my Savior, but he's not really Lord. I want salvation. I want you to be my Savior, but I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I don't think you can find Christianity anywhere, salvation anywhere, that's that kind of salvation. And the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very clear in that. For he says that we must confess with our mouth and be saved. But if you notice in verse 9, he said, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The confession of our mouths means that Jesus must become Lord. He must be Lord or you cannot be saved. Somebody can't walk an aisle and say, well, I want to be saved, but I don't want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Salvation won't happen because the confession won't be there. I want to receive salvation, but I don't want to, I don't want to repent of my sin and trust Christ and make him the leader, the Lord, the driver of my life so that he can dictate and determine who I am, where I go, and what I become. Notice, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The word mouth helps us understand this confession is very public. I don't know about you, but the mouth is an organ of the body, and when it speaks, it can be heard, right? There's going to be sound. And so when you confess with your mouth, that means there's going to be something you're going to project when you place your faith and trust in Christ, that is going to be heard by others around you. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so we must then confess it with our mouth. It becomes a very public declaration of our intent to follow Jesus and to make him not only our Savior, but to make him Lord. If you look at the text, the word mouth also means that it's very personal because it is one's mouth. One confesses. It's a personal confession. It's not something that someone else can confess for you. It is something that you must confess yourself. Mom and dad can't confess it for you. The pastor can't confess it for you. I can't really tell you what to confess. And this is what the problem I have with a lot of what we call the sinner's prayers today is because we're coaching people what to say. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do some of that. But sometimes people simply mouth what we say they should mouth without fully understanding what they are saying. And so it's, it becomes very hard then for them to confess Jesus as Lord on a personal level. And once I then, on a personal level, commit to him the leadership of my life, it is a positional thing in which I take Jesus and I put him in the driver's seat of my life. You see, before I was saved, I was in the driver's seat. I was doing what I wanted to do, saying what I wanted to say, thinking what I wanted to think, living the way I want to think, doing my own thing, living in sin, totally despicable. But when I come to faith in Jesus, I not only accept him as my personal Savior, but I confess him as my Lord. And there's a positional change here. I step over here, and I place him in the driver's seat. There's a positional change. He now becomes the authority of my life. I'm no longer the authority. Jesus is. And, and with this positional change, you see in this confession that it's a progressive change. 
Because, you see, once you place Jesus in the driver's seat, (laughs) the end of the Christian life isn't the moment you pray the prayer and you're dunked in the baptistry and all of a sudden everybody goes, yeah, 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 you're saved. That's not when it stops, is it? That's the beginning of the journey. That's only the first step. And there will be other steps after that that you will take as you follow Jesus step after step after step. So it's a progressive step. So once I make that positional change, I step out of sight and say, Jesus, now you become Lord of my life. You are positioned in the authority of my life. Whatever you say, I will say. What you ask me to do, I will do. What you want me to become, I will become. Where you lead, I will follow. I am progressively making you the Lord of my life. And here's where a lot of people in their decision to accept Jesus, they sort of step aside temporarily and then they go, oh, I want to back in the driver's seat, God, because, you know, I don't really want to go where you want me to go. I don't really want to become what you want me to become. I don't really want to give up that sin. I don't, and you know, it's a permanent change. It's a permanent change. It's not a one-time change that happens in a momentary yielding to the Spirit of God and say, okay, now (laughs) you become Lord in this moment so I can be saved and then walk out the door so I can believe what I want to believe, live like I want to live, say what I want to say, do what I want to do, think what I want to think, become what I want to become. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Now, I'm becoming what he wants me to become and I'm doing what he wants me to do and I'm going where he wants me to go. Why? Not in order to be saved, but because I am saved. I I let him occupy the driver's seat and take me where he wants to go as I follow his direction and in his footsteps, not to be saved, but because I am saved. That's the the result. See, there was a a man described in, in, in Matthew Gospel, I think it's chapter 18 or 19, about the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, well, obey the commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, obey your mom and your father, and those kind of things. Done that. Done all that. See, he was trying to earn his salvation. I've done all that. Jesus said, really? He said, yeah. You've done all that? Done all that. Well, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. What did he do? He walked away disappointed. Why? Because the Bible said he had great wealth. But it's really more than just the fact that he had great wealth. What the Bible is helping us understand is he wasn't willing to make Jesus the Lord of his life. He was putting worldly things ahead of Christ. And I'm convinced that there are many people today who somehow have convinced themselves that they have received Jesus as their personal Savior but are faltering or failing in the aspect of lordship in their lives. But when we came to faith in Jesus, we permanently put him in a position of our authority where he gets to determine and dictate where we go, where we live, what we think, what we feel, what we say, what we become, how we give, how we serve. He's, 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 he's in the driver's seat. And we're resting in him, letting him dictate and determine the outcome of our lives. So, I hope that's brought a little bit of clarity as I see it in Scripture, and I wonder, have you taken the first step today? In 38 years, I've seen and heard of and known of pastors who have been saved. 
after years of ministry. Deacons who thought they were saved. Sunday school teachers who thought they were saved, who had spent decades teaching the scriptures and suddenly realized, I was never truly saved. I'm not trying to trick you and I'm trying to confuse you, but I'm wondering, maybe the reason why you're having such difficulty in your Christian experience is maybe there's never been a genuine heart transformation, a change, where the Holy Spirit of God has pulled you under himself, drawn you to him, and you've responded to that. You've believed and you've confessed him as Savior and Lord of your life. Let's pray.